invite you to take your Bibles once again and turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 9. Hebrews, chapter 9. And today we are in verse 15. We're continuing on through this chapter that we began last week. And when you get there, would you rise out of reverence for God's word as we read our passage together? May this be an act of our worship before a holy God. As we not only study these things and read these things, but may we allow these things to sink deep into our hearts. Hebrews 9.15 Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes place only after death, or takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with those rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Amen. This is the glorious word of God. You may be seated. This morning we are continuing through Hebrews chapter 9 and we are still sounding the depths of the gospel as we go through this section from Hebrews chapter 7 through chapter 10. We're still today we are exploring the connection between death and blood and sacrifice. And these things touch the very heart of the gospel. We sing the hymns. We sang a couple of them this morning. We sing those hymns, What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. 
Another one is, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And another one, have you been to Jesus for his cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? So as Christians, we talk a lot about blood, we talk a lot about Jesus' blood. And sometimes that confuses people. And there are some Christians who say, well, you know, we, we shouldn't use this Christianese. And we shouldn't talk about the blood of Christ because people don't understand what we're talking about. But that's why we need to explain it better. Because talking about the lifeblood of Jesus Christ is essential to understanding the fullness of the gospel message. Christ's perfect sacrifice is the means by which we are purified from sin and can stand righteous before God, forgiven, justified by faith in Christ alone. And so today we're going to talk about blood and death and sacrifice. And so in our passage this morning, I think there are four main sections we're going to look at. First of all, we're going to look at verses 15 to 17, where he talks about a will. We're going to see how a will is activated by death. A will is activated by death. The second section, verses 18 to 22, we're going to see that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And then thirdly, our third point this morning will be Jesus sprinkled the heavenly realities. And that's verses 23 to 26. Jesus sprinkled the heavenly realities. And finally, fourthly, Jesus is coming for judgment and salvation. Judgment and salvation, verses 27 and 28. So let's take a moment, first of all, to, to take a look at our first section, verses 15 to 17. A will is activated by death. So verse 15 starts us off where we left things last week. The old covenant left us under the wrath of a holy God because the terms of the covenant were presented in the law and all of us have transgressed God's holy law all day every day. And when we transgress God's holy law, the only response of a holy God to such rebellion is holy wrath. And that's the situation that we were left in with a law that was too perfect for us depraved humans to keep and a covenant filled with curses for disobedience. The law brought the cursings of the covenant down upon our head. And Paul said this in Galatians chapter 3. He said, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. And that's why we needed a new covenant, one with better and surer promises, the promise of an eternal inheritance. And verse 15 informs us that a death has occurred that redeems us out from the old covenant. The death of Jesus Christ is the mechanism by which the debt of sin which we owe to God is paid in full. 
And what Hebrews wants us to understand is that, is that covenant and death are closely connected. The idea of covenant and the idea of death are intimately connected. Death is intimately associated with covenant. And that's why it's important for us to understand what a covenant is, especially in the ancient sense. We can think of a covenant as a kind of contract with terms of agreement, responsibilities of both parties, with promises attached if the contract is kept and consequences if the contract is broken. But we also have to understand that a covenant goes much deeper than a legal contract because a covenant redefines family. It brings someone else into family relationship. If I make a contract with you, we are partners in legal obligation to one another. But if I make a covenant with you, we are now brothers. And that's why the breaking of a covenant is so serious. Because it's like breaking up a family. And an ancient covenant was also religious. You made a covenant with someone before God. And so if you broke your covenant, you were at the same time dishonoring the God before whom you swore to uphold that covenant. And so breaking a covenant meant spitting in the eye of God. But the main way that an ancient covenant was different than a modern contract was its connection with death. Death is even embedded in the language of covenant. For in the Bible, you do not make a covenant. No, you cut a covenant. Just what do you do when you cut a covenant? Well, you cut an animal in half, and then you swear your covenant oaths. You walk in between the two pieces of the dead animal, symbolically acknowledging that this is what will happen if you dare break the covenant that you are making. And so we see that a covenant is a very serious thing. It is much more than simply a contract. It is a family treaty ratified with oaths before God and the sacrifice of animals. And so Hebrews, here in our passage, he wants to demonstrate to us this connection between covenant and death in verses 16 and 17. And here he has a specific kind of covenant in mind, that of a last will and testament. Because a will, when someone has a will and then they pass away, that is a kind of covenant. It's a specific kind. So let's look at verses 16 and 17. It says, For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. And we understand this principle right away. Right? When someone has written up a last will and testament, it doesn't take effect until that person has died. Because up until the moment of death, that will cannot be changed or adjusted. The promises contained in that will cannot be activated without death. In fact, it would be rather insulting and offensive to seek the inheritance before the death of the one promising that inheritance. And that's, remember, that's just what the prodigal son did. The younger son, he didn't want to wait until his father had died before receiving his share of the inheritance. What an offensive and dishonorable thing that son did. 
by demanding his share early. It was like he was asking his father to hurry up and die already because the money was more important to him than his still-living father. And by taking that money early on, or earlier, the younger son was symbolically declaring that his father was already dead to him. And so it, that story also reveals the amazing, magnanimous grace of the father to accept the offense given by his ungrateful son and to give that ungrateful son his share the share of his inheritance early, like he demanded. And so we, un we understand this connection between a will, which is a kind of covenant, a last testament and will, and this connection with death. And we must take care not to overthink the analogy that Hebrews is making here. We must not apply this too strictly. Instead, we should just take away the simple point that Hebrews is laying down, that there is an intimate connection between covenant and death, especially in the case of a last will and testament, that kind of covenant, where the promises do not take effect until the death of the one who made it. But in the case of the new covenant, Jesus was the one who made it. And in his death on the cross, it is his death on the cross that activates it. For instead of killing an animal to bring it into force, he offered himself up to death thus bringing the promises based on his covenant into full force. So that's our first point this morning. There's a connection between covenant and death. We see this in the old covenant. We see this even brighter in the new covenant. Our second point this morning, verses 18 to 22, is without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So let's look at verse 18. It says, Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. So even the old covenant was activated by death through blood. Blood was sprinkled on everything. A little blood here, a little blood there, a little blood sprinkled everywhere. Even when Moses had assembled all of the people together and he read all of the commandments of God to them out of the book of the law, when he finished, he took a bowl of blood and he sprinkled it on the people. And Moses even sprinkled blood on the book of the law itself, Hebrews informs us. Now, why did Moses do this? Well, why was this important? Why was this necessary? What does the sprinkling of blood symbolize? Well, to answer this, we have to go back to the law, and we have to understand the connection that God makes in the law between blood and life. Listen to these words from Leviticus chapter 17. This is God speaking. He says, If any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them, eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood, and will cut him off from among the, his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. 
For the life of every creature is its blood. Its blood is its life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any creature. For the life of every creature is its blood. Whoever eats of it shall be cut off. So that's Leviticus chapter 17. And did you catch that? The life of every creature is its blood. The blood is its life. And this is even why we use that older term, lifeblood. Right? You've heard that before? Because we understand this connection between life and blood. Blood represents life. So when Moses sprinkled the people, and he sprinkled the book of the law with blood, what is he doing? It's like he's sprinkling them with life. But obviously the lifeblood is no longer in the animal, is it? So the animal is dead. Therefore, by sprinkling all the people with the lifeblood of a dead animal, Moses is reminding all of them that their lives have been spared. It should be the blood of the people being sprinkled. But instead, animals have taken their place. The sprinkling of blood is actually a reminder of God's awesome grace. It is a reminder that he is a holy God. And therefore, an absolutely just God. And for sin, there must be payment in life. For the righteous decree of God for disobedience is death. And rather than destroying his people immediately for their daily sin, God graciously provided a sacrificial system of substitution, whereby a holy God could dwell with an unholy people. Let's continue verse 21 and 22. It says, In the same way Moses sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So Moses sprinkled everything with lifeblood. He sprinkled the tabernacle and the menorah lampstand and the altar of the bread of the presence and the altar of incense and all the instruments used to maintain these things like the tongs and the stokers and the censers and the forks and whatever else they used. Everything was bloody. Just imagine that if I had a bowl of blood right here and I began sprinkling everything that was up here. What would be your reaction? You might be thinking, oh, that's gross. What is he doing? Because we think of blood as causing stains. Don't we? we try to get blood out as fast as we can. We think of blood as being messy and dirty. But God, instead, he was constantly showing his people, the Israelites, that lifeblood was actually a purifying agent a cleansing agent to make them ceremonially clean on the outside, at least, so that they would not be annihilated by the glorious holiness of God dwelling among them. And that's why, well, that actually, that's what verse 22 says. It says, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Why? Because without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. That is a key verse. Let that one sink down deep into your heart and your mind. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. 
Let us remember what blood is. It's life blood. So it's like saying here, without the outpouring of life, there is no forgiveness of sins. Without death, there is no forgiveness of sins. Why is that? Why must someone or something die in order for sin to be forgiven? That's a very important question that we must understand. Why must someone or something die in order for sins to be forgiven? Why? Because sin against God always carries the death penalty. Sin against God always carries the death penalty. From the greatest abomination to the tiniest little dishonoring, all sin against a perfect God carries the death penalty. And let me take a brief moment to correct something that sometimes I hear Christians saying. Maybe you've heard it before, where you hear someone saying that all sin is the same in the eyes of God. But that's not actually true at all. Sin is not all the same in the eyes of God. There are greater sins, there are lesser sins. Obviously, if we think about it, the sin of murder is worse than the sin of lying. Under Israelite law, some sins called for restitution, others called for fines to be paid, other sins called for corporal punishment in the form of beating, and other sins called for capital punishment, where the offender was to be executed. And this shows that there are different categories of sin. We even see this when God calls some sins, he labels them abominations, that they are disgusting in his sight, whereas other sins, he does not use that description or label. So this indicates that some sins are especially evil in his sight. So sin is not all the same in God's eyes. But what is true is that all sin whether great or small, has the same punishment before God, and that is death. So if you murder someone, death is the verdict. If you rape someone, death is the verdict. If you worship an idol, death is the verdict. If you commit adultery, death is the verdict. If you steal something, death is the verdict. If you look at someone lustfully, death is the verdict. If you tell a lie, death is the verdict. If you gossip and slander someone, death is the verdict. If you dishonor your parents, death is the verdict. If you hate someone, death is the verdict. So because of this, because the penalty for every single sin, whether it's great or small, is death, we recognize, or at least we ought to recognize, that none of us would last even one single day without being immediately put to death by God for our sin. Unless, unless God allowed graciously, and unless he set up a system by which sin could be forgiven through the death of a substitute. So something still must die, but at least it's not you. For something still needs to die, otherwise justice has not been carried out, justice has not been served. But God graciously allows an animal to die in the sinner's death, so that the sinner's life may be preserved, at least until the next sin, and then another death needs to happen. Without the shedding of lifeblood, 
there is no forgiveness of sins. But the lifeblood of an animal can only bring external cleansing, ceremonial forgiveness. It cannot cleanse the heart, it cannot cleanse the mind. It can do nothing to avert the righteous wrath of a holy God on the day of judgment. The lifeblood of an animal can do nothing to save a person from the fires of hell. Our third point this morning is that Jesus sprinkled the heavenly realities. Verses 23 to 26. Verse 23 says, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Here is the contrast once again between the earthly copies and shadows on the one hand and the heavenly original realities on the other. The earthly temple in Jerusalem, along with all of the ceremonies and sacrifices attached to it, was but a mere copy and shadow based on the original blueprints of the heavenly temple where God dwells in the fullest sense. And so the earthly temple was sprinkled with the blood of animals for the purpose of purification before God. But just imagine for a moment trying to take animal blood into the heavenly temple. Well, that wouldn't work. That's inferior. Animal blood has no place in the heavenly presence of the living God. The heavenly realities are worthy of a superior sacrifice, superior lifeblood in order to bring purification. We may find ourselves asking, well, why though? Why would the heavenly temple need purification? Isn't it already perfectly pure? Yes, it is. But in order for sinners to enter into that purity, purification must be made. And in the perfectly pure presence of God, a perfect purification must occur by means of a perfectly pure sacrifice. So verse 24 says, For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Amen. The divine Messiah has entered into heaven itself, into the real temple palace, into the throne room of heaven, into the actual presence of God. And he has done it on our behalf. He has done so for our sake, representing us, acting as our mediator, our middleman, our great high priest. In him, through his representation, we ourselves appear before God now in right relationship with him. Verse 25. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Here Hebrews does not state it directly, but he tells us implicitly that when Christ entered into the heavenly presence of God, he brought something with him. He brought his own lifeblood with him. The high priest on earth, when he entered into the Holy of Holies, he had to bring lifeblood that was not his own. It was the lifeblood of an animal substitute, a goat. He had to do this over and over again, year after year. But in contrast, 
Christ, our great high priest, did not make a repeatable offering. He gave just one perfect single sacrifice, his own precious divine lifeblood. If it had to be repeated, then it was not perfect or sufficient. But because it is both perfect and therefore sufficient, then it cannot be repeated. He appeared once for all at the end of the ages, and he did not bring a sacrifice. No, instead he sacrificed himself. And look closely with me at what this single perfect sacrifice of the divine Messiah accomplished in verse 26. Do you see there what it accomplished? It says, it put away sin. It put away sin. If you're reading out of the NIV this morning, it says it did away with sin. All the other main translations say put away sin. This verb is a beautiful verb. It means to cancel out, to nullify, to abolish. That's what happened when the divine Messiah offered himself his divine lifeblood as the perfect sacrifice. It canceled sin. It abolished sin. It nullified sin. And let that sink in for just a moment. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross wiped sin out. His sacrifice canceled sin. It abolished sin. It nullified sin. It did away with sin. Therefore, if that is true, then it cannot be repeated or recapitulated or reenacted or perpetuated in, every, in any way. Because if you try to repeat his sacrifice, you're saying that there's still sin left over. That there's still sin needing to be atoned for. And if you try to repeat it, you're saying that Christ's sacrifice did not actually fully do away with it. There's still a little sin left over that needs to be dealt with. And so you're saying, if you try to repeat it, you're saying that Christ's lifeblood was not quite good enough. Not quite sufficient. It needs a little help. It needs a little supplement. No. As believers in Jesus Christ alone, that means that we trust in his single, once-for-all-time sacrifice alone. That it is perfect and sufficient. That it has completely wiped out our sin, past, present, and future before God. Jesus Christ took his cross and he slammed it into the earth, causing a split in the space-time continuum, where the consequences of his act of obedience exploded into eternity in accordance with the joyful design and purpose of God. There's another consequence, I think, that follows from this verse. That Jesus abolished sin, or he canceled sin, or he nullified it. That other consequence is this. That if Christ truly, if he truly put away or abolished or nullified or canceled sin through his sacrificial death on the cross, then he did not do that for everybody. Because if indeed he did that for everybody, then everybody's sin has been put away. Everybody's sin has been abolished. Everybody's sin has been nullified. And if everybody's sin has been put away or abolished or nullified, 
then everybody is going to heaven. Because God's wrath has been completely satisfied. And so he has no more wrath to pour out on anyone. But we know that's not the case. So instead, we understand from this verse that Christ has put away, or he has abolished, or he has nullified, or canceled sin for a specific people. For his people. For his church. For his bride. For his body. For his own. For his sheep. For his brothers and sisters. For his called ones. For his elect. What a comfort it is to know that if you are one of Christ's sheep, and he is your good shepherd, your sin has been put away by his perfect, sufficient sacrifice. Your transgressions have been removed from you as far as the east is from the west. Christ has purified you by the sprinkling of his own divine lifeblood. Our last point this morning, verses 27-28, Jesus is coming for judgment and salvation. Verse 27 says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. As Christians who believe what the Bible teaches, we completely reject the idea of reincarnation. You only have one life to live and one death to die. God has appointed that every human being will face judgment before him. And this is intrinsic to God's holy character. God does not wink at sin. Indeed, he cannot. God must judge every sin down to the smallest one. Otherwise, he is not just. And justice is one of his fundamental characteristics. And so a man dies once and faces the judgment of God. One solitary sin on his record is enough to bring the full weight of God's righteous wrath upon his head. In the same way, Hebrews says here, Jesus Christ also died once, but his death bore the sins of the many, Take note of that, not all, says here, but the many. And he does not face the judgment of God, instead he brings the judgment of God. For Jesus Christ is the great judge who will appear a second time. And this time he will not be making atonement for sin like he did the first time. Instead, he will be fulfilling the salvation that he purchased and initiated the first time. He'll be fulfilling that by rescuing his sheep from the eternal wrath of God's judgment. I remember I had the opportunity to visit Israel in 1999 with a Christian tour group, and the tour guide on the tour bus was a talkative Israeli. And I remember him saying one time to us on the bus, he said, you Christians believe that the Messiah has come already, and we Jews are still waiting for him to come. And when he comes, and if he turns out to be Jesus then we Jews will believe in him. And I distinctly remember thinking at that time, no, sorry, but it'll be too late at that point. Why will it be too late? Because Jesus is not coming back to deal with sin. He's coming back with the judgment of God. 
and the salvation from that wrath for his people who are eagerly waiting for him. And the mention of salvation in this verse wraps chapter 9 up very nicely. For it is the consequence of everything else that has been said. Jesus Christ is the perfect high priest of a perfect covenant who has offered a perfect sacrifice, nothing less than his own perfect lifeblood, entering the perfect temple in heaven to perfect an imperfect people in the sight of a perfect God. What does this mean? That Christ has achieved for us a perfect salvation. And we are eagerly waiting for the consummation of that salvation when we see the skies split open and the Lord returning in glory on the day of judgment when he will judge the living and the dead. And so without the shedding of lifeblood, there is no forgiveness of sins. It is the divine lifeblood of Jesus Christ offered to God in the heavenly temple that has canceled our sin. And this is the basis of our sure expectation of salvation on the day of judgment. When we say that we believe in Christ alone, we mean that a perfect Savior accomplished a perfect salvation. And no one and nothing can make any addition to that. Because you can't improve upon perfection. You can't add to what is already perfect. He is the only one who can save us from the holy wrath of God. He is all we need. Let us pray. Father God, we understand that these things are deep and profound and complex. But Father, we are so grateful that these things are in your word that you have shown us and taught us through this passage and through this section in the book of Hebrews why Jesus' sacrifice on the altar of the cross, why it matters so much. Because the life is in the blood. So when Jesus poured out his blood, he was pouring out his life blood to purify his people and his sheep and his elect. And so, Father, we thank you. We can never say thank you enough that our sin has been put away by Jesus on the cross. It has been canceled. It has been abolished. It has been nullified. It has been done away with so that you are truly satisfied. Your justice has been satisfied by the perfection of his sacrifice so that we can stand righteous before you, not in our own power or strength, not in our own good works. Indeed, we have none, none that are good enough, but because of the good work of Jesus Christ. And so it is him we trust, it is him we believe in, it is him we adore, him we love, him we serve, him we seek to glorify and honor. And so, Father, forgive us when we have failed to do that. Forgive us when the the idols and distractions of this life turn us away from Christ. Father, put our eyes back upon Jesus. Put our eyes back upon his perfect sacrifice. And Father, help us to be comforted by these things daily that when we are downtrodden, we are weary by the the things of this life, Father, 
fix our eyes back on the gospel. That even in spite of all of these troubles that we face in this life, Jesus Christ has done away with sin, and that was the real problem. So, Father, we ask for your encouragement this day as we leave this place. Help us to continue thinking about the gospel and what it means that Jesus shed his divine lifeblood on the cross to abolish my sin. Hallelujah. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray all these things. Amen.